You are listening to Mining Stock Education, where you'll learn from the top leaders in the natural resource sector and uncover quality mining investment opportunities. I had a saying recently I'm kind of trying to kind of adopt from, from myself as saying that lithium is a new oil in some extent. It's just, it's so consistent with regard to its application in energy that it's, it's kind of that analog, not quite the same, but yeah. So I would say my, my personal favorite would be lithium. Hi guys, this is Brian Lenny of Mining Stock Education and Junior Stock Review. Today with me, I have a new guest, Frank Nikolich, VP of CRU's North America, based in Metals Battery Team. Uh, Frank, it's great to have you. And since you're a new guest, why don't we start off with an introduction to yourself and your role at CRU? Awesome. Thanks, Brandon. It's a pleasure to be here. So a little bit about myself. So I've been uh, 20 years in the mining industry, all of that with uh, uh, with a major, Vale, uh, to be specific. It was Inco and then Vale in a variety of roles. So my first thing, I'm a mineral processing engineer by background. So I'm a metallurgist. I did that for about eight to 10 years, got my MBA, and then I switched out of that into more of the corporate world. The first was uh, competitive intelligence, so understanding what everybody else is doing in our space. And then they put me in uh, managing strategic planning. So did a lot of uh, M&As, due diligences, cash flow evaluations, project valuations, internal, external, so all the fun stuff. Um, and then I went back to market intelligence. I managed the team there, taking care of all the supply, demand, price forecasting, short-term, long-term, commercial strategies. And then I uh, did that for about four or five years. And then I moved on to, I said, I need a bit more variety uh, in my life. So I went to commercial operations. Uh, first was uh, sales planning, performance planning, and digital transformation. And then they gave me global logistics and the global order to cash at the back office, all the revenue uh, side of things. And then earlier this year, I, I decided to uh, join CRU. And uh, CRU uh, is a London-based company. They have offices all over the world. But what they do is they provide uh, intelligence, market intelligence, in essence, uh, through analysis, through data aggregation, through insights. Uh, and events and certainly pricings uh, to the commodity space. So they cover, we cover rather, uh, a whole slew of, of commodities. Uh, me, uh, my role here, I'm the I'm the VP for the base and battery metals. It's a new role. It's, I'm based in Canada. I was the first hire in Canada. We have another one person joining very recently as well. So we're looking to grow. Because uh, Canada is, is uh, I think, increased, it, it always was a huge anchor in mining, uh, but it increasingly can become even bigger anchor, especially as we have some huge mega trends that we have to manage in this space. Yeah, I know it certainly is, especially with what's going on in the world today. Um, North America especially looks like a, a great place to to develop and expand. So we're going to be talking about the, you know energy transition and supply chains and such. Um, I thought we'd start off by talking and, and we'll center our conversation around probably the Western perspective or like, let's say North America. Um, so if we break the net zero emissions goal down into three parts and we say it's okay, energy generation, uh, transmission and storage and transportation, in your view, which of those three areas is lacking the most in terms of investment? I would say it's, it's a little bit of all of them. Um, it, from the mining perspective, I would say it is the, the, uh, the generation of the, mater the materials that are needed to support the transition. So like you said, we have, I would expand it to four things. I would say uh, how, we, how we generate energy, how we transport energy, how we um, store energy, and how we use energy. So everything about energy, <laughs> I don't keep repeating the word, is, is changing how we interact with energy. We used to be in this fossil age, and now we are rapidly moving into this green age. 
And to do that transition, we need a lot of metals, uh, particularly nickel, lithium, copper, cobalt. Uh, we still need a lot of specialty steels, aluminums, and so on. So in this case, I would say that um, the battery, the making of the battery and the facilities, that's that's being developed and it's being built out. Um, but, and the EV, the, the putting together the car is also kind of built up because already a lot of you know, a lot of OEMs exist and they're just retooling. And it's believe it or not, it's actually a bit cheaper to produce an EV than a regular car, so they're benefiting with that. Uh, but it, we have to kind of scale it back to a little bit more to say, well, what's lacking for that infrastructure? We need a, a lot more infrastructure to to transmit the the new renewable energy. That's a basis of, of power generation and to store energy, because uh, one of the things that with as we move everything to electric is the the burden on the on the oh, I'm going to say the infrastructure right it, it was this problem of this is the problem that's repeating itself from the 1940s when back in the UK everybody was flipping their um their tea kettles at the same time after work and it, and it just collapsed uh, collapsed the grid um so because the way the energy is generated it's never consistent it's it's always actually it's consistent but the use is not consistent because it might be all sleep uh, so in this case, you you would need uh, big energy storage uh, banks, and then we had a project Tesla most recently executed in Australia. It was a couple of years ago, but I think recently it's coming to into uh, called production. Um, and then if you take a step back as well, is is um, how we generate energy. I think that's continue to be built out with solar, with wind, with uh, offshore, and as I said, all of that needs all the metal. And what I think since you're talking mining. Is that that is lacking? Uh, I would say investment, especially especially for from the on the western supply side of things. Right. You know, it's it's interesting with the, with the three, or that's at least how I sort of look at it. And in some ways, I feel like we're kind of putting the cart before the horse. You know, we're starting with sort of the transportation end, and and almost in my mind, I almost look at that as the like the end product um, because you know, like that energy transition from you know fossil fuels or nat gas, let's say, to solar and wind. You know, without that storage, you know, we saw what happened in Germany with with the, it just not working, and and so it, like it, it seems to me like that would be where the the biggest push is, but it doesn't seem seem to be that way. Um, talking about this, let, let's start with the energy generation side of things and this push towards uh, solar and wind, and wh- what is that impact? Can you can you quantify to some degree of what that means to the metals markets? Um, and when what metals may be most impacted by you know this transition? Perfect. So on the energy uh, generation side, I would say that copper is probably the more impacted metal, uh, just because it's it's in everything. It's in the it's in the motor. It's in like to generate them from from the wind turbine. And you got the electric motor. It's more going towards copper windings versus ferrous magnets because free earths are rare for a reason and there's a lot of international competition for which i'm sure we'll touch upon later so i would say for from from this infrastructure and renewable energy i would say lithium uh, sorry yeah i would say copper is the one that's most impacted uh, from that perspective actually we just did some work very recently i gave a talk in a few places where without this energy transition looking over the long over the mid longer term copper demand growth is only like 0.3 percent year over year but so it's it's stagnant in essence. Point three is not growing much at all, and there's a reasons for that. Uh, well, the reason is really that the what well, was a driver in 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 the copper demand, which was China, it's maturing as an economy. So you will see a lot of traditional demand starting to peter away as China's need to 
industrialized and urbanized is coming to an end and they're entering a mature economy phase. Um, and, and then, so uh, with this energy transition and the, the three things that are driving copper demand in this space is obviously electric vehicles, renewables, and infrastructures built up. So all those, all those three things uh, increase copper demand from 0.3 to 1.1. And that's that's a threefold increase in the growth rate, which is huge. So this is you know this is in breathing new life in copper demand, which is huge for copper. Right. And so you know, the, in terms of like from the perspective of North America or, or North America and Europe, um, where do you think that where is this development of the copper going to come from? Like, is it is a relationship with South America that seems to be where a lot of the the biggest copper discoveries have been? Um, but, you know, from a nationalist perspective, you know, the security of supply chain, it seems like people are competing over South American metals. Um, so is it going to have to be developed within Canada and the States or even in Europe? Or is is there other places where that supply chain can be kind of mended together and, and support us? Uh, it's absolutely. I think you, you touch upon a really interesting topic. So and then let's kind of uh, pause on that and and open it up a little bit. So. I think one of the, the important mega trends that, are, that is upon us is this emergence of multipolarity uh, and the emergence of BRICS as an economic block to compete with us in the West. Uh, and, and China, and this is led by China by and large, um, and China has been very busy with a Belt and Road Initiative, have been incredibly successful. I think this is the 10th year, and they have been, and, and we at Syria, we've done a, an, an assessment of you know, if you look at mining, refining, processing, building of CAM, so cathodic materials for the batteries and so on, and how much is Chinese company ownership in terms of equity basis. And they've, in some of these, uh, some of these steps, they're almost 80% controlled by, by China or Chinese linked entities. So they're, they've been pretty busy. Uh, they knew this trend was coming and they've prepared for it, which left us kind of in the, trying to play catch up and when we are we have the ira and the green new deal that the europeans are doing that's trying to inject a lot of money into the system to attract supply and and to your point okay on the copper side you know we had the traditional south american chile now peru as well as emerging brazil is pretty big in copper as well not as big as chile certainly or peru so that's the traditional one and and that's continue that will continue to be a big source of copper um and I would say Africa is also, especially DRC, Zimbabwe, Zambia, really big when it comes to copper as well. And we have some projects coming up in Indonesia, which are also large. We had the Grassberg, which is which is a big one, but also a couple of new projects. Um, that's not enough. And to the point that when, when we talk about securing of the supply chain, um, I think a lot of companies will need to re-risk their exposure to geopolitical tensions. And there was a recent report by the OECD, came out in April, and they talked about you know this competition for resources and the restriction on the trade of commodities. Uh, we've seen China issue restrictions on rare earths, germanium, gallium, saying that no, this is not going to be exported. Um, and they've noted, the OECD said that there was a five-fold increase in these trade restrictions since they started taking measurements in 2009. So over the last you know, 15 years, we've had a five-fold increase. And that, I think, is only, only going to increase because we've seen a sudden increase in tension all across the globe. Uh, it, I don't, it's not quite accidental that these things happen. I think there is just, you know, these powerhouses are emerging and saying, look, this, you know, they're standing up to each other and they're 
there's going to be butting heads. We just don't live through that uh, turmoil, uh, unfortunately. But in that, there's a lot of opportunities. I do think that, especially for Canada, given our natural abundance of resources that we have in our, let's say, friendly jurisdiction in, in the Western world, uh, it will become a natural anchor. So to, let's say, to the supply chain. So when I talked about de- or re-risking the supply chain or de-risking it, all these companies need to ask themselves a very simple question. How much of my supply chain am I willing to, exp- to or rather, can I operate if half of my raw material suddenly I have no access, I have no access to it? I mean, that's an important question. Like, or what percentage of my supply chain can I leave at risk and still be a going concern so I can still operate? I don't know what that number is. I'm sure that it's being crunched, but you know, as we speak, by some of these companies who are maybe more ahead of than others, and and that will naturally kind of start pivoting a lot of, I think, attention towards safe, friendly jurisdictions, which I think, as you said, I think Canada is going to play that important role. Right. And so, do you think that's across the spectrum, like not only from the mining, but I think one of the biggest question marks, I think that. I have as an investor is like one of the biggest things about these mines is their proximity to smelters or, you know, the secondary refinement part of the the integrated chain. So do you think that um, with it, because it's funny because environmental laws and environmental regulations probably have never been higher yet. It seems like smelters and this secondary refinement, if we want to keep that chain within house is going to have to be you know, that's also going to have to be a higher priority for the country. So do you foresee that too? Do you think governments are going to push permitting timelines up, maybe loosening some of the the environmental regulations to, to, to get some of these smelting facilities that, you know, I think for most investors there, it's like, what is your proximity to China? Because that's where the offtake is probably going to go. It, it, it's a good question you ask. So I spent a little bit of time recently uh, talking with juniors and developers and, and mid-tier companies. And one of the number one complaint that I've received on last is is the permitting and, and the licensing. It seems to be a bit more delayed than usual. Uh, it's more burdensome, uh, but that is the way of things. If we if if the whole let's in there, this whole story is is look, we have a climate we want to we want to manage. We want to take care of that so that there's things that we have to do to to do that. Um, so I don't think that's going to l- loosen, despite let's say the need to do it. I do think more it's going to be, if we are smart about it, is it could be a barrier of entry into our markets from companies and entities that aren't as rigorous or as, as demanding as us. It needs to be, because otherwise our industry is going to go, you're not going to be healthy because we're going to have this cheap, you know, dirty material competing with us, right? Um, so that's 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 been a problem for, for quite a while, but I think... Um, we, you know, our people that govern us should take advantage of, of the fact that we have such, you know, high level of standards when it comes to the care of the environment and put a barrier of entry. Because I think that's that's really the only way to allow us to kind of compete. But you're right. <laughs> the biggest thing was how close are you to China because everything is done there. I do think there needs, there is going to be a, some transition back here. It has to, uh, particularly because of the, ge- the, the geopolitical tensions. You can't just rely on China who can suddenly close the door, not because maybe there's dual attention, but because they want to keep the value add on their side and restrict the flow so their companies can compete in in, this, in the Western space. And because they, they, they've actually leapfrogged us already. I don't know if, 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 you know, we haven't seen it yet, but we will soon see a lot more 
uh, Chinese companies and Chinese cars and they're directly competing with here, which isn't bad. I mean, we're, we're open markets, right? But this sort of competition ought to be fair, right? Uh, how will we define fair? Uh, you know, there needs to be uh, some consideration to that. Yeah. Right. Like, is it well, like the nickel market, for instance, well, you know, with Indonesia and, you know, they put restrictions on, on exports of nickel and it, it was all to bring in you know, the secondary refinement into their border instead of sipping, shipping the raw product to China and having it processed there, right? But then it comes up with this, you know, this new nickel mat um, end product that they're creating and the nickel mat invariably leads to nickel sulfate. And, you know, when it looks to that supply chain right now, like I know that regulation is there, but from what I can tell, we're still getting infiltrated from this so-called, you know, dirty nickel. And uh, it might change, you know, the the address of who who shipped it might change, but invariably, its its end source is is Indonesia. So it'll be interesting to see how that changes, or if it necessarily does, over the next you know decade or so, leading up to twenty thirty, and then of course, uh, twenty fifty. Um, going on the energy generation side of things, um, like for instance, in Ontario, we came up, or the the Ontario government has put in a billion dollars into development of SMRs. And SMRs, I think, is a really interesting way of kind of moving forward with this, you know, you know, zero uh, carbon emissions goal. But the thing is with the SMRs, it looks like from the from what I read, we're still ten years away from having that developed and commercially operating. Um, so, where do you think from uh, the transition? Like, is nuclear going to be a big part of that trans- transition, or are we looking at is this plainly a solar wind? Uh, maybe geothermal type of of move in the the energy transition. I, I can't help but imagine that nuclear is going to play a big role here. Um, I think um, the attitude, especially in Europe, are changing when it comes to nuclear. Uh, I, I do think it's always been green. I, th- I think there's a danger, a stigma to it because of the catastrophic failures that have occurred and can occur um, that don't exist with other types of energy generation technologies. Plus, in Canada, we have candle reactors, so which is which is actually a really unique way to to utilize you know low low enriched uranium um, to generate power. So, which is which is a, I think a really neat offering. So, I do think that it's going to be part of the energy mix. I think I don't think we can solely go from solar and wind and geothermal just because those ones aren't generating power consistently and constantly, whereas something like nuclear would, I would say. So I think I still do expect it to be part of the mix. So, but considering the considering the timeline for those kind of projects, and if twenty fifty is indeed the goal, doesn't a decision or the money have to be transferred there like relatively soon? Don't you think? Like to me, it's like if it takes five to ten years to develop a new, like a regular new plant, how like when you've got twenty six years up until twenty fifty, how do you like how do you do this? You know, is it going to be twenty plants that are going to be built in the next ten years or? Um, like it's just it's an it's an interesting dichotomy in in choice. I agree, and 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 the same problem we have with with mining and mining investment. Like just looking at it, just we should talk about copper. You know, we need about 120 billion dollars over the next 10 years, almost 10 billion a year, to just keep up with uh, with the required uh, demand, uh, and and that's huge, massive. Uh, and with nuclear, like you said, like. 10, year, 10 plants uh, over the next short little while. I don't think we have engineering capacity to deliver on that. Um, so it's go- I agree, it's going to be a challenge. I think um, it's a lofty task in front of us. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's just going to generate a lot of activity and a lot of investment. And, and whether we make make it to the target, uh, I think the point is that we try and get as 
hard, hit as hard as we can, as fast as we can. Uh, and maybe, maybe it's not 2050, maybe it's 2075, then we achieve it. But oftentimes these targets are set so that at least we have a goal to work towards. And, and yes, it's going to be a daunting task and there's a huge gap in a lot of things. Uh, but you just going to start working towards that and, and deliver as much as you can. Right. Uh, on the battery metal side of thing, you know, and let's talk, let's talk cathode. Um, which, which metal are you, do you think is the biggest opportunity for investors? Like what should they be looking at? Uh, really good question. So, so the, when it comes to the battery, there's two sides we have to consider the anode and the cathode. Uh, so the anode side is lithium and uh, that's consistent with the, regardless of technology. And I'll talk a little bit, there's some competition potentially coming up in the future. I'll talk about a little bit later, but, but for now in the foreseeable future, it's going to be lithium. So. And then on the cathode side, there's a mix. Uh, we have nickel, uh, cobalt, manganese, iron, phosphate, a couple of other mixes of, and depending how you mix these things, you get a cathode. Um, and and the and and the pick of the battery will depend on several things. So uh, performance, uh, how long it takes to charge, its weight, its volume. A lot of consideration will go into what an OEM, so a Ford, a GM, a Tesla will pick as their battery of choice. And, and just like, I think just like today, like with regular cars, there's an auto catalyst inside the car, which, which uses palladium, platinum, rhodium, and the composition of the catalyst will, will depend on price. So they will, the OEMs will optimize that, uh, the composition to minimize the, the cost. The same thing I think will come with the battery. So you will have, uh, some of some companies will offer a, a, a rich nickel battery, which is really high performance in luxury models, whereas entry models will go into the LFP, which is a cheaper, uh, cheaper, cheaper battery. Um, and there, and also you, you know, an LFP battery will need more of the battery bank to give you the same performance as a nickel one. Um, so it will, how you can put it in the car, for example, will matter, right? Cause you have some limited space there. So, so back to your question, which metal is most exciting to me, it's lithium, to be honest. Because it's just it's just so consistent in all the chemistries that you don't have to worry whether it's every five years the chemistry is going to change or every two years, however, whatever the the cycle of the you know the of how the OEMs choose the battery production cycle and you know maybe it's two years, three years, uh, they'll run the production cycle, they'll change it and run it again. Um, so, but that'll change. So your exposure would be kind of risky in terms of what chemistry am I able to predict is going to be the one that's going to be attractive. On the other hand, lithium is just consistent throughout. You know, I had a, um, I'm, I had a saying recently. I'm kind of starting to kind of adopt from from myself as saying that lithium is a new oil in some extent. It's just it's so consistent with regard to its application in energy that it's it's kind of that analog, not quite the same, but yeah. So I would say my my personal favorite would be lithium. Okay, so we can talk about lithium specifically, but it probably. It probably can be shown in, in any of the other metals too. Like the the you're talking about price and how the chemistry changes. And you know when cobalt spiked, then you had the five three two and the eight one one nickel chemistries that came out uh, for the cathodes. Uh, but for lithium, you know while it's not commercially viable yet, direct lithium extraction to me anyway seems like a really interesting way to bring brines, um, you know, to the forefront and probably really ch check that cost curve. So do you think something like DLE is a threat to the lithium price or is it something that, you know, we're going to see sustained lithium prices around the levels that we're seeing today into the future? Oh, it's a good question. So 
the best analog, well, I'm going to refer to oil as the analog. So we had the oil drill well, and that's, for me, that would be like the, the solars or sailors, what they're called, just kind of those pods that you just let dry out, which are very cheap. And then, and then as the as the need rose and the cost justified it, you went into uh, shale or sand, oil sands and fracking. Uh, same thing here. So I think there is going to be a price point activation with regards to this this different extraction method. So I do think there's a there's a time and place for 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 those things as well. But with regards to prices, I, I will have to check. But I would say that we anticipate prices to come down relative to where they are right now. But stay here steady because there's a lot of this team. Lithium is not scarce, neither is oil. Um, but uh, it's it's feeding into solid, which is such a massively growing market that you're bound to need to unlock these different uh, sources of lithium. So I'm I'm, I'm sure that it's, it's going to come into and keep the market within the next twenty years for sure. Right, and do you, does lithium fit into the? nationalist or protectionist type of mentality like do you think that each country is going to have to sort of facilitate their own supply of lithium you know moving forward to like fit in those battery chains or is this something that they're going to be able to like go to south america go to africa go to these other these other maybe neutral sites to uh to to get their lithium i i think uh competition is going to play a big role so uh Countries have now uh, created uh, their critical and strategic minerals lists, uh, which uh, which have uh, th- th- which has meaning in, in that it, certain programs get activated to either attract supply or help lower the demand for that, um, and and a lot of metals lithium included are added to these lists. So, for Canada, Canada has its own list. Uh, U.S. has its own list. Most recently, U.S. Department of Energy added copper to their list. Uh, would have thought copper would become strategic, but here we are because it's just needed to that extent. So as soon as it becomes strategic to a nation for its energy transition and for the uh, let's call it the survival of their native champions, I think it's going to become critical for them to secure it either through equity ownerships within let's say lithium producing jurisdictions or to develop their own uh, lithium lithium mining camps. Okay, so is being on the critical list enough to incite investment? Because it seems to be that's one of the missing links is, you know, we've identified, yeah, we need this, we need that. Yet, if you look at the equity markets, you look at development in copper, lithium, um, it it really, I don't know if it matters anywhere in the world, uh, but there seems to be a lack of investment. So how do you think, uh, like, is these, are these critical lists enough to spur investment from governments, from big investors, from the, you know the battery companies good question uh, the, the trouble with those lists is there's they pretty much everything is on the list today which makes it really problematic to focus on on any one thing so and that's why i think money is, has a really hard time finding what to focus on uh versus being spread spread like butter on on, on bread so I, I would think that we need something a little bit extra to help focus that sort of investment so either needs to be a sub list to say okay we're going to prioritize these commodities because they're urgently needed uh oh this is the particular gap that we have from a risk perspective uh, but that needs to come from from the government i suppose but i do think that's needed i agree i think right now capital has a hard time focusing on where to go so everything's competing based on economics but i don't know if that's just enough 
Um, you know, one of the interesting things, like I, I, I think you'd probably agree that a lot of this lack of investment, the criticality of the the different metals, probably it, it probably is easy to foreshadow higher metal prices in the future. Would you agree? I would agree. Yes, I think I think um, it, it, everything in mining is cyclical. Uh, as as the, you know, if you spend enough time here, you've lived through quite a few cycles. Um, so a couple of years ago. You, it was good for commodity markets because the the energy transition was just you know was becoming like a very strong story. Uh, so and there was a strong recognition that look, we need these metals now, and hence the price of lithium or cobalt or nickel, all of them went up, um, and and that incented a lot of fast developments. So all the low hanging fruit development, like in Indonesia, like in uh, South like in South America, with regards to lithium, happened. And a lot of this material came, and now we have surplus in the markets. So it's kind of the, it's kind of keeping the prices in check. Um, but that's that's a cycle. Soon enough, demand's going to catch up, and we'll need more of these metals. So we're going to expect another cycle coming, probably the next five to eight years. So I do think it's going to be prices going to increase to support the incent development for sure. Um, you know, so in in the world that we live in now, you see, you know, the the states last year comes out with the inflation uh, inflation adjustment act, and they push money into renewables and such. Uh, but the underlying storyline is, you know, the cost of living is going up. And I can like it's it's well, actually it's not funny, but it, I've been standing in the grocery line. I do grocery shopping for my family, and honestly, over the last few weeks, I've heard so many people complaining in the lineup ahead of me about the cost of groceries. So, you know, obviously people are feeling the crunch and, you know, high interest rates only exacerbate that, that pressure. We talk about metal prices going up. We talk about the transition to EVs and renewable energy, and it seems like the cost of living is only going to go up further. And then I see at the local Ford dealership, the, the Ford Lightning is 110,000 Canadian, something like that, like a roundabout. It's not a hybrid, but it's, it's probably where, you know, to, to reach these goals where it needs to be. But I guess my question is, who's going to buy the $110,000 Ford Lightning? And it doesn't have to be a truck. You, you know, that you can find some reasonable price Teslas. But you know, the contractor, the plumber, the the framer, he's probably going to have to buy something like that. So I guess the question is, what is the what is the balance between price and what ac- people can actually afford? <laughs> That's a very good question. And I just want to echo your your uh, uh, complaint with the prices that we that we it's it's um it's um. It's unprecedented, honestly. Um, so, and that that is a challenge. So, I think for um, and the price is so high that let's say subsidy or, or incentive for the government is just not going to cut it. Um, and, and I agree, um, not going to cut it. And also, a lot of countries are forcing the transition from a regular car to an EV. So, we've seen com- countries put deadlines 2030, 2035. You can't buy a gasoline powered car anymore. So we'll have we'll be faced with that with that choice, and and most of us won't be able to make that choice simply because the entry. So um, I think there needs to be an evolution of the offering of some sort. Um, you know, if the battery is the most expensive component, then maybe you lease the battery versus buying the battery, uh, which has some implication with regards to the recycling of the battery as well, which which is a, another topic. So I would say that we need. Um, we as a society and, and, and the OEMs that offer and sell cars to the public will need to reconfigure how the car is offered so that it actually gets the, 
gets the buy-in from the public that needs to. Because I agree, hundred thousand hundred thousand dollar car, nobody's buying that. It's interesting, you know, like uh, so. You know, we were talking uh, via email beforehand, and you pointed at this McKinsey article, and I thought one of the really interesting at the very end of the article they talked about uh, the super majors, the oil super majors moving into renewables. But there was one line that I thought was particularly interesting, and to me, it's a huge, uh, it's a huge red flag in terms of where things are headed. But you know, they talked about Exxon Mobil buying up land, uh, prospective lithium land in the states. And I think to myself, you know, wow, like these super majors are based off or focused on oil and gas exploration and have for, you know, a hundred years in Exxon's case. And now they're getting into something in terms of exploration work in a, a commodity that they have probably no, I, not that they can't buy that expertise, but it's, you know, it's a lot different than the oil and gas market in my view. So I just, I wonder how this ends up turning out because, you know, I think we'd be better off on a, on a dollar cost average to have these guys, you know, putting, continue to put money into oil, that guys that are, you know, in lithium focus on lithium, the, you know, the experts. Uh, but it's, it's really interesting where, where this is sort of headed us or we're heading. And I, like, it, it really makes me wonder about the, the cost of living and where it's going and these, uh, the societal changes, like you kind of pointed out, you know, to people, maybe going down to one car is the way I view it, or, you know, working from home three days a week or four days a week instead of commuting into the city is probably where things have to head for for any of this sort of to make sense in, in my mind anyways. Um, so, you know, let's let's talk about the the uh, the kind of sustainability side from these super majors getting into lithium exploration and and such. Um, do you think that that's going to make a, a major impact to something like the lithium sector, having these super majors come in with boatloads of money and and starting their exploration work? I, I think so. So as I mentioned earlier, like I do consider, I do keep seeing, you clearly see lithium as a new oil. So it doesn't surprise me that the oil majors are looking to expand into this space. Um, and it's a good thing because the more money is thrown at a problem, presumably the solution is going to be more product, which means lower prices, which means lower prices trickling down into the end products. For oil companies, I think they they have an existential threat in front of them or an end to an era. Um, certainly oil is going to still be needed uh, for applications, certain applications. I don't think we're going to be, you know, uh, shaving our addictions as, as quickly as some people hope. So, so they're still going to be there, but to a much lesser extent. So they need something new. Um, so whether it's lithium, whether it's other commodities, like the Saudi, Saudi conglomeration recently bought into Bali at a certain percentage to get into the nickel base. So they're all looking for for interesting plays to position themselves for that benefit. But I do think maybe that's the money that we need as a mining, as a traditional mining sector. We need the, the oil guys to come in and inject all this capital because they have it uh, to just spur this growth. So I do think it's a positive. Yeah. Well, like I guess from the point that I'm trying to make is like on the expiration side, there's so much risk. And I just to me, it's like if that money's going to be put into anything, you know, it is on infrastructure, it's in charge stations, it's in producing nickel mines, or it's in producing copper mines, or those 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 projects that are on the cusp of needing just the financing to get over that line. Um, but again, like it seems like either go starting from grassroots to kind of get into it. But, but can I just add to this? I, I think a part of that is the overall valuation equation. So going into an existing, you, you're paying a premium because it's being de-risked. 
because uh, you found it, you built it. So you're paying a premium to be at that stage of uh, project or development or an asset, right? So, so I would say that them going to the grassroots is probably the 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 most gain they would gain they would get by finding something. As usually it is, right? When you hit the discovery, you made it rich, right? So. So, you know, it doesn't have to specifically be what's going on in the Middle East right now, but you can parlay it to Russia, Ukraine in the last couple of years, sanctions, war. It looks like things could really, you know, we were segmented probably to begin with, but this to me anyways, looks like it could be that much bigger of a thing. Let's, let's let's go from the point of view that it is going to make things a little bit worse. How does that exacerbate? you know, exactly what we're talking about, this transition. Does it make it harder? Does it make it easier? How does it affect the metals markets? I would say it makes it uh, significantly harder. Um, so where there was room for cooperation, uh, there's more animosity. Um, but there's room for compromise, there's more competition. Um, I think with the with the rise of BRICS, and, and I think the rise of BRICS and these wars are manifestations of the rise of, of, of the BRICS because they're happening at this time where BRICS is expanding, China is on the rise, they're becoming a merchant empire in their own right. They're, you know, they've done you know, really great work to get where they are. Um, but it just means that the, the, you know, they've leapfrogged us in terms of, let's say, they make the most EVs in the world, they export the most EVs in the world, um, and that's, they need a home for that production. And we are a natural home because we are developed uh, rich but getting poor everyday economies right um so and their cars are coming in at a price point that's going to be it's not a hundred thousand dollar car it's going to be a thirty thousand dollar car and we'll be buying it because you know you're going to compare your own pocket and say which one should i buy well too bad ford or you know yes you built here and we want to support you because you're domestic but your price point is hurting my pocket to the point where i can't not afford to buy a, a import a chinese import and they're fine. The quality of the cars are just as good, by the way. Um, but in that in that change, uh, where value is retained in this value chain also shifts, because there's no wonder that we, as a developed economy, we were making all the cars, we were making all the high engineering precision pieces, and we made all the money. But that has changed, and and the, this competition for for the raw materials that you need to to fuel your economy. It's going to make it harder. I think the, the the pockets of these deposits in Africa and in South America and Indonesia, it's it's increasingly being competitive. So which and we're going back to kind of looking back to the kind of the original part of the discussion where we talked about you know big majors need to re-risk or reevaluate their risk exposure to geopolitics, and and you know do I have a business if suddenly I can't have access to these raw materials? It's not the same as before. It's absolutely not because in a regular car, let's say, because we talk about cars, you got the engine, and the engine is a set of alloys, mostly iron, um, and there's some nickel in it, but things that are not so unique or, or special, but a battery is, is is something completely different. You need different sort of metals and large, much, 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 much larger quantities um, than, let's say, a regular car, or an old version car. So I agree with you. It's going to be a lot more competition. Um, a lot more tension, a lot more trade wars um, for quite some time until a new a new balance is achieved. Either somebody goes back to be on top or there's a parity of some sort. And then we live through some, you know, new new life, I would say. But in that chaos, there's gonna be a lot of opportunity. 
I think, especially for for juniors, for mid-tiers, we have good projects because they'll need to be funded to be to create that anchor. We'll need an anchor. Without the anchor, we got nothing. So, right, Frank, I've really enjoyed the conversation. Um, I think it's a tremendously interesting topic. Uh, you know, the, this transition and and all the the things it's going to do to the metals markets. Appreciate you coming on, and hopefully, we can talk again soon. Absolutely, my pleasure, Brian. All the best. Thank you for listening to Mining Stock Education. Please subscribe and share this show with like-minded investors. Connect with us at miningstockeducation.com and sign up for our email list to stay in touch. Much success to you as you learn about, invest in, and profit from mining stocks. The mining business is one that generates gigantic wealth. You know, a good drill hole that converts might cost fifty or $100,000, and it might discover something worth a couple billion. There is no sector that I know of that has offered up as many predictable circumstances uh, where there was the possibility, certainly not the certainty, but the possibility of 10-for-one returns as there is in small-cap and micro-cap mining stocks. Concommitment with that, if you don't do the work, or even if you do do the work and don't discipline yourself on the sell side, there are very few places in the world where you can lose as much money as quickly as in mining stocks too. I just started to study up on mining stocks and I just became fascinated because this is such a tiny sector and it's so volatile that either you could really, you could do really, really well or you could pretty much get blown out of the water really quickly. The mining sector is a very risky sector. It can take your money very, very quickly. Don't fall in love with stocks. Don't be overly confident and just do your work as best you can. Do your very best, but don't fall in love and don't get too overly confident because um, that's a recipe for disaster. I have met you know, professional retail investors that have made a tremendous amount of money on the junior mining space. Some of them aren't accredited and they just they spend their days researching, talking to people, being on the phone, being pouring through financial documents, but it requires commitment. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not to be considered personal legal or investment advice or a recommendation to buy or sell securities or any other product. We make every effort to be accurate, but the information presented is not to be considered infallible. It may contain errors and we offer no inferred or explicit warranty. If personal advice is needed, consult a qualified legal, tax, or investment professional. Do not base any investment decision on the information contained on miningstockeducation.com, our podcasts, or videos. Make sure you always conduct your own own thorough due diligence before investing. Realize that we may hold equity positions in or be compensated by some of the companies we feature and therefore are biased and hold an obvious conflict of interest. For our full disclaimer, please visit our website.